Right, well, we're going to start a little uh, kind of a mini-series, you might call it, over the summer months. Uh, the children were in, are in here because of the month of July they have off. The teacher, we gave the teachers off, they gave them a break, a well-deserved break, I should say, and uh, appreciate all they do for our children every Sunday. And, uh, but because of the, the nature of some of the teachings in Corinthians that we were dealing with, I thought it might be a little more appropriate to do something a little more family-oriented, so I thought we would take a uh, couple weeks and speak on God's design for marriage and family. Now, I don't know of a subject matter that doesn't touch everyone here in this room. Even if you're single, it touches you because one day you may not be single. And so now's the time to learn, to grow, to be edified, so that when that time comes, when God brings along your mate... If that's his divine will, then uh, you'll be ready. Um, and that's such an important um, segment of our, of our church, our church families and our church marriages. Because I really believe our church will only be as strong as the marriages and the families that represent and make up Grace Bible Church. But when we look at this biblical view of marriage over the next couple of weeks, we're not going to be focusing necessarily on any one scripture. Today we'll be a little bit in Genesis 2. Uh, we'll jump around a little bit, so it's more of a topical series, just so you know that. Usually we're going through a book of the Bible, but we're going to take a break. Um, but when it comes to marriage, you know, it's always something that, as a pastor, you have to deal with, not just your own personal marriage, but sometimes you're called to deal with other people's marriages in counseling. And um, I, I was reminded of this little story I read years ago. A pastor and his wife knew they made a big mistake by agreeing to counsel Mrs. Smith. Uh, she opened the first session of marital counseling by saying this, I want to thank you for seeing me, especially since my husband said he'd kill anybody that I talk to about our problems. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's how private, how personal a marriage can be. Um, in 2005, there was a Guinness World Book record holder, Percy and Florence Errol Smith. They held two records, the longest marriage of a living couple. Back then it was 80 years. We had a couple in our church. Swanson almost made that. I think, and having the longest or the largest married couple's aggregate age, 205 years old, and they're still married. Um, well, both Mr. and Mrs. Aerosmith obviously had died since then, but they left good advice if you're interested in having a lasting marriage. And here's what Florence said, the wife. She said, you must never go to sleep bad friends. If you've had a quarrel, you make it up. Never be afraid to say sorry. Good advice. Well, Percy, the husband, had a little more humorous side and look at things. And he had a secret. And he said the secret to his long marriage was just two words. Yes, dear. <laughs> and that's kind of true. <laughs> um, when you come to a series like this on marriage and family, there's going to be temptation for some of you maybe because you're single or whatever to feel like you're left out. Well, be patient. When we get back in Corinthians, we're going to deal with singleness and all that. So your time is coming. Um, but this study can still benefit you, as I said, because it can help you prepare uh, for that day when God brings along that mate for you to marry. And it helps you in the research, too, of finding the right spouse as well. So today we want to look at this subject matter of uh, God's design for family and uh, marriage. I don't believe there's anything more fundamental, more foundational um, than the truth that we're considering these next couple weeks, dealing with family, dealing with marriage, because it lies really at the heart of our civilization. It lies at the heart of our social uh, construct. Uh, the first institute that God created was the institution of marriage. We see that in the book of Genesis. It's also key to our own spiritual lives as well as uh, other areas, but it's, it's very key to our spiritual lives. It's foundational to 
the church. As I said, our church will only be as healthy as I believe the marriages and the families that make up our church will be. Um, years ago, we had a uh, potter uh, come to our church, and he made this magnificent piece of pottery in front of our eyes out of a lump of clay. And I remember watching him as he fashioned and he pushed and he pulled that clay, and he was kind of disgusting when it was all over. He was just covered with mud, covered with clay. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, that, that really takes a lot of work. And I rem- I'm reminded of, of Romans chapter 12. When we went through Romans, uh, turn over there with me in Romans 12 and just look at verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. And it's kind of where I want to begin this morning. It says, you, it says there, Romans 1, Therefore to, to you, therefore, brother, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and then he says, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says this, Paul writes in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, what's interesting here in this, in this verse, in verse 2, do not be conformed to this wor- world. The word world here is not the common New Testament word for world. Um, that's cosmos. That's not what it is here. Here it literally means age. Um, you, you could paraphrase it this way. There is with every age, with every period of time, with every culture, a certain set of values, uh, a mindset, a worldview, you might call it, a collection of, of thoughts that make up the mindset of that age. And that's what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 12. He's saying don't be conformed to the mindset of this world. And I want us to keep that in mind when it comes to marriage, when it comes to family. He's saying don't be conformed to the mindset of the age in which you find yourself living. Now, all you have to do is pick up the paper, watch the news, and you know that the social construct of our, of our, of our society has a certain mindset when it comes to family, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to raising children. And that has a tendency to push its way into our Christian lives. And pretty soon we're listening to secular counsel. We're listening to secular reasoning on how to improve our marriage or how to discipline our children or how to do this or how to do that when it comes to our family. And Paul is saying, don't do that. He says, don't be conformed. That word literally means to push into a mold. It's like that potter when he was up here, who's shoving that 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 clay into his what he wanted it to be he fashioned it he's saying don't be pushed into the world's mold concerning the thinking of how you should live don't be pushed into the mold of the mindset of this age it's a, it's really a sober warning that paul has given here for all believers and i think unfortunately we live in a day and age when christians have allowed, unfortunately, their thinking to be shaped and to be fashioned and to be molded by the constant, in some cases, gentle pressure that you may not even notice is going on around you. It conforms us to the age in which we live. In other times, it's a violent pressure. It may not be as gentle to conform us to the culture and I think we, don't, we, we see this pressure, we see this conformity going on in a lot of areas, but especially in the area of marriage and family. Because we feel that we have to reshape our views to fit, to be politically correct. But Paul says here, absolutely resist that with everything you have within you. We have to be renewed in our thinking when it comes to these things, by the eternal, timeless word of God. 
That's where we need to look for counsel. And so as we begin this series on marriage and family, let me just warn you, as we come to passages in the Word of God, there are going to be things that Paul says, there are going to be things even that Moses says, that are radical in comparison to what our society thinks. Um, Now, it's not my words, so don't attack me. (laughs) We're going to God's word. We're going to see what Paul says. We're going to see what God says. And what I do is I really urge you to step back and over the next coming weeks as we spend time together on this subject matter, make a, what I would call a genuine effort to set aside your own personal agenda, your own personal views of marriage and family, and to listen carefully and to check everything I say against Scripture. And wherever you discover that your own views are contrary to that of Scripture, I pray that you will find yourself being gently shaped, gently molded by the Holy Spirit to conform to God's will and God's purpose for marriage and family. Because it's God who designed marriage. It's God who came up with it. Um, So we're looking forward to this time together to change our lives, to change our thinking, even to change our marriages, to change your family. But be open to the clear teaching of the Word of God. I mean, who's better to teach us about marriage? Who's better qualified? Not me. It's God. It's God. God designed marriage, beloved. Marriage was the first human relationship that he established. God matched the first couple, if you think about it, ever to get married. There's some people that believe even the the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the Son, performed the first wedding. (laughs) Because you get to Genesis 2.25 and Adam and Eve are called man and wife. That means somewhere on the sixth day of creation, maybe Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form performed that first wedding ceremony and united those two as one. See, God continues to have a great concern, a great deal to say about marriage. Even in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 it's kind of a shocking statement. You can turn over there if you want, First Peter 3, 7. It, it basically tells us as husbands and wives, it's speaking directly to husbands, but it can be applicable even to wives, that if we don't live up to what God requires of us in marriage, that it's literally going to affect our spiritual relationship to Christ himself. That's pretty heavy duty. As a matter of fact, it says this, likewise husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your, look at what it says, your prayers may not be hindered. What Peter's saying here is, if you aren't listening to your spouse, then you know what? God's not listening to you. That's really what he's saying. That's the bottom line. I mean, how do you even wrap your mind around that? God is serious. He's concerned about marriage. Uh, Even over in Matthew chapter 19, turn over there with me, the Lord himself pointed this out to us. Remember when we went through the book of Matthew years ago, we covered this. But in Matthew chapter 19... Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus in verse 3 there, and he's asking him about divorce. But notice his response in verse 5. Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Christ doing here? Christ is affirming what is recorded all the way back in Genesis about the foundational institution of marriage. And then he adds in verse 6, look at what he says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, 
let no man separate. Now, we hear those words at a wedding ceremony, and we think, okay, yeah, just get through it. You know, I want to kiss the bride. (laughs) But those are very serious words. We kind of pass over them glibly, but, but really, they're profound. And these are the words of Christ about the institution of marriage. Now, I know some of you have been touched by divorce and and maybe your first marriage failed, that's, that's part of living. And you need to ask God for the grace to, to make everything you can out of your, your present marriage. This isn't a judgmental thing, but it's really depicting the importance of marriage itself, that this is nothing to be trifled with. This isn't something that it's not a big deal. God takes marriage very seriously. Now, here he's talking to unbelieving people who asked him about marriage. And he says, let no man separate. Sometimes we classify marriages, well, Christian and and non-Christian marriages. So if they're non-Christians, it doesn't really matter if they get divorced. Who cares? But a Christian, well, they shouldn't get divorced. No. God says across the board, marriage is something that he instituted and that it should be important to all who enter into it. God joins people together in marriage. According to Christ, it's only in heaven that there'll be no marriage. Until then, marriage is and will continue to be part of life, even if the social engineers of our current um, society desire else, you know, to desire something else. It's not going to happen. In fact, when you turn to Matthew 24, you don't have to turn there, but Christ says at the time of the second coming, when he returns, he says that they will be what? Marrying and giving in marriage. So marriage isn't going anywhere. As much as people want to downplay it and, and minimalize it, and it's going to continue. So how can we gain God's perspective about marriage? Well, obviously, we come to the Word of God. Trust me, I'm not standing here as some marriage guru that has it all figured out. My wife and I struggle in our marriage just like everybody else struggles in their marriage because we're two sinners saved by God's grace, called to live together in perfect harmony. And it's only when the Spirit of God rules and reigns in our hearts that that happens. But I'll tell you one thing, the two of us are committed to our marriage. Absolutely committed. So if you want to understand marriage, there's no better place to look than the first marriage. Go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And look with me. We're going to be reading verses 18 to 25. Because within these eight verses are the Scripture's most fundamental convictions about the nature and purpose of marriage. Moses, what he does is he lays out here the biblical foundations of marriage. Because what's recorded here are not just the circumstances of the first marriage, but it lays down the biblical convictions about every marriage, including your marriage, including my marriage, including your future marriage, if you're single here today. And so let's read, follow along as I read for us, Verse 18, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. For the Lord had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave 
his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, here are the verses that reveal to us the most fundamental biblical convictions in the scriptures about marriage. Convictions, I pray, that each one of us hold dear and that each one of us should follow in our own relationships, in our own marriages. Well, what are these fundamental convictions? Well, we're going to look at a couple today maybe and finish them up next week. But the first is simply this, that marriage has a divine purpose. Marriage has a divine purpose. When God designed marriage, when he performed the first wedding, God had several goals or specific purposes in mind. Now, if you're married now or if you'll ever be married, you ever hope to be married in the future, God has some exact purposes in mind for your marriage. The same purposes he had in mind for the first marriage. Um, See, this is where a lot of couples stray from God's original purpose or original design. They go astray right here at the beginning because they come into a a wedding, they come into a marriage with their own goals, with their own purposes, and they completely ignore what God has purposed. (laughs) That's not a, a good way to start off a marriage. And so they either end up with a miserable marriage, wishing they were out of the miserable marriage. You know, the only thing worse than wishing you were married is wishing you weren't. (laughs) Or they end up crashing and burning and ending up on some divorce statistic list somewhere. And why? Because they've ignored God's purpose for marriage, his purposes for marriage. So what are the primary purposes for marriage? Well, you can go through scriptures and you can find a whole lot of them. You really can, but we're not, we don't have time nor the wherewithal to do that, so we're going to just focus on a couple. The first purpose here is that God has a purpose. <laughs> the first purpose of marriage is relationship. Relationship. Look at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I remember reading that when I was single, when I was alone, and thinking, well, you know, I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul. I'm, I'm never going to get married. I just, you know, it's ministry, all ministry, you know, very. And then I met my wife, <laughs> and God humbled me real quick. The Trinity had deliberate. deliberated about creating man. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 26, it says, then God said. Well, who's God talking to here? There's nobody there yet. They're talking to each other. The Trinity's talking to each other. He's talking to the other members of the Trinity. Let us, it says, make man in our image according to our likeness. So God had deliberated, and now here God deliberates again. This doesn't mean here that in verse 18 that this idea is just coming to God. Hey, I think I'll do this now. Let's see, I created all this. Well, now I'll create. No. God has a divine purpose. And remember, God transcends time. Okay? So there's not a yesterday and a tomorrow with God. It's hard for us to grasp that because we're limited to time, but God is not. So he didn't create man, and they said, oops, messed up. i got to create all these animals. Well, they didn't work. Well, what do I do now? I know what I'll do. I'll create woman. (laughs) No, that's not how it was. It was his plan. God already knew he would create woman. But it says he lets lets us understand what his plan is, what he was thinking about, according to Moses, so that we would understand the mind, and the purpose of God. We're really told here about God's thinking. We're seeing behind the curtain. 
You know, when your kids get in trouble and you say, what were you thinking? (laughs) I don't know. You know, but you want to know what would cause you to do that. Well, God's telling us what caused him to do this. It's interesting because seven times in chapter one, Moses says this, and God saw that it was good. His creation was good. And you read through chapter one, and after each day there almost, you pick up that amazing reality that God's continuing to say, it's good, it's good, it's good. So it's shocking when you get to chapter two of Genesis and you discover, well, wait a minute, something's not good. (laughs) How did that slip through the, the deal here? Only God knows what is good for us. And he says, here in his word, man's greatest need is a relationship. He says it's not good for man to be alone. So when it comes to marriage, man's greatest need, the greatest purpose behind marriage is relationship. Now why is this relationship so important, you may ask? Well, remember, we were made what? In the image of God himself, were we not? Back in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, that's recorded. In chapter 5, verse 1, that's mentioned as well in Genesis. But one thing it means for sure is that we were made for relationships. See, there's this constant fellowship and relationship among the members of the Trinity. They don't go to their three corners, never talk to each other. They don't ever interact. To be made in God's image means to be made for that kind of relationship. I mean, if you, if you want to taste of the nature of the relationship between the members of the Trinity, read John 17. It tells us very clearly. Turn over there, John 17, because this is a, a good section of Scripture to really see the interacting nature of the Trinity itself. And it gives us a perspective of the relationship that we should be experiencing within our marriages. Now, this is the night of our Lord's crucifixion. This is his great high priestly prayer to his father. And notice the relationship between the son and the father. They're beginning in verse 22. It says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. See that relationship? I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them as you loved me. He says, Father, I desire they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, have known that you have sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. What's that about? It's about relationship. He's talking about his relationship with his father, his relationship with those who are saved. See, in marriage, this is the great goal. It is a deep, intimate, abiding relationship with your spouse. That doesn't just happen. We're not talking about two people that live under the same roof. We're not talking about just hanging out together at Home Depot, looking at how to upgrade the bathroom. We're talking about the sharing of two hearts, the sharing of two lives. Now, I'll just be honest. I'll talk to men. Men, we don't have a clue about relationship. We just don't. We're not geared that way. I mean... I've sat down with husbands and wives for counseling, and there is the wife in tears. She says something like this, you know, 
I just don't know how much longer I can stand this marriage because we don't have a relationship. And you look over and you know what's going to happen. And you're praying it doesn't, but you know it's coming. The husband gets this shocked look on his face. And he looks over. And he looks back at me and he says, I thought we had a great relationship. <laughs> We've all done that. At time. What, what are you talking about? We don't have a clue. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, what's happening there? There could be a couple different possibilities. Maybe the wife is kind of has this romancy idea about what the nature of her relationship to her husband should be. But secondly, I think this is more common, the husband wouldn't know a relationship if it walked up and kissed him in the face. Because men don't understand relationships. And frankly, they don't care. That's just bottom line. Stuart Scott wrote this in his book, The Exemplary Husband. Some of you men have been through that with our men. Maybe we should go through it again, but... That was a boy, that was a tough one. But he wrote this some husbands have excused themselves from their God given responsibilities with deceptions. What's he talking about? He's talking about responsibilities in relationship. With deceptions such as it shouldn't take so much effort to be together, or my wife should be thrilled that I'm her faithful provider and protector. Why can't that satisfy her? Or I don't really need relationships because, you know, I'm just not a needy kind of person. Well, if that's how we think, men, we're dangerously close to really blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because remember what I said, they have relationship. (laughs) And as a man, we have a tendency to say, ah, we don't need that stuff. Well, the relationship exists between the Trinity, not because they're weak, (laughs) but because that's God's ideal. They have such a deep, abiding relationship. Well, what are the two greatest commandments in the Bible? Remember this, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And then what? And the second is like it. What does it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. What is that? It's relationship. In other words, the most important things in life Beloved, are from God's perspective, this is God's point of view, our relationships. Our relationship to God and our relationship to others. It's not about the stuff. It's not about the car and the house. It's not about the job. But not only did Christ tell us that these things were important, but he showed us in how he lived. I think if we were to take a look at Christ's to-do list, it would be a whole lot different than ours. Vastly different. Because we live in a different world, and our priorities, unfortunately, haven't been established by God. Um, Christ's life was all about his Father and people. Everywhere he went, he was interested in people. And what's the goal of our 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 lives to be Christ-like, to be Christ-like. It doesn't just mean moral purity, although it includes that, obviously. It also means to imitate Christ. Paul says what? Follow me, imitate me as what? What's he say? As I imitate Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Well, let's just put this bluntly. Both men and women you know what, we can't be a godly Christian without being committed to relationship. And that starts with your spouse. That starts within the boundaries of your marriage. If you were to ask this question, who's your best friend? Who is the one with whom you talk about everything? Whom is the one who knows what you're thinking before you even say it or how you're feeling by the look on your face? I mean, I'm not a big touchy-feely kind of guy, but my wife can read me like a book. My fears, my hopes. I would never tell anybody, but I would tell my wife. And she would hopefully say the same thing about me. See, that's the way every Christian marriage should be, because... 
the first purpose God had in mind for marriage was relationship. Well, what runs as adversaries to this relationship? What comes against it? What are the enemies of this kind of relationship? Well, there's a couple. I listed them there. One, just fleshly thinking and living. Over in Galatians chapter 5, there's a list of the deeds of the flesh. And just mark it down. If you've got problems in your marriage, these are part of the problem. It's just very simple. Um, it, it points out your enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes. You ever have any of those pop up their ugly heads in your marriage? I'm sure you have. I know I have in mine. That describes most of the problems that we end up counseling marital couples with. If you live according to your flesh, if you're not obedient to the Scripture, then you're getting yourself ready for really a a bad marriage. That's not a good choice. Because the works of the flesh are always opposed to the works of God. And God wants good relationships, not bad. So ask yourself, are you living according to the flesh? But I think one of the second enemies of this is pride. Pride. And pride really comes in three forms there. I wrote it down for you in your outline. I thought it was pretty important. Self-exalting pride, when you exalt yourself above all others. Self-centered pride, you're just focused on you and you alone, what makes you happy. You don't care about anybody else. It doesn't have to be in an arrogant, boastful way. But pride can can be absolutely self-centered and also self-effacing. See, all these things, that's kind of the inside out of pride, but the person's still focusing on themselves. Pride will hurt your marriage every time. The third thing here that are enemies in any relationship in marriage is simply selfishness. Selfishness. Looking at what you can get out of your marriage. Not concerned about anything else. Um, And a lot of times in counseling, that's the one thing that comes to the surface. Either the husband or the wife will say, you know what, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want this. This isn't what I expected. You know, I'm not getting any younger. Why do I have to put up with this? I want what I want. It's that kind of attitude. That is totally opposite to what the thinking of God is as recorded in the Scripture. Totally opposite. 1 Corinthians 7, you know, to turn there, but verses 33 and 34 says, those who are married should be seeking to please their spouses. Not themselves, their spouses. Paul says the wife seeks to please her husband and the husband seeks to please his wife. I mean, how would you rate your your relationship with your spouse? Little test. You're the best of intimate friends. Maybe you're warm acquaintances who share much in common and enjoy being together. Maybe you're casual acquaintances who share common space and common responsibilities, kind of like roommates, co-workers. Four, maybe you're competitors, always looking for a weaker weakness in, in, in the other to gain control or advantage. Could possibly even be settled enemies living under the same roof. I've seen a couple of couples that way. That's not pretty at all. Where would you rank your relationship with your spouse? Better question is where would your spouse rank your relationship? (laughs) Where would your spouse rank that relationship? See, we all could say, well, you know, it's been a sordid gamut of all those. But we should be striving to, for number one, we should be striving to be the best of intimate friends in our relationship. Well, the second purpose here 
of marriage is not just for relationship, but we see this in verse 18, Genesis 2 as well, is help, help. Um, It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a, what's it say? Helper, helpmate, helper. The Hebrew word there translated help or helper usually uh, refers to divine assistance, God helping man. Only in a couple places in the Old Testament do they speak of man helping man. Kind of interesting. So it's, it's pretty unusual um, that Moses would use this word to refer to wives helping their husbands. Um, and that's this responsibility that it's talking about. Wives were created by God to help their husband. Now, I know, ladies, you may be getting a little, uh, don't like that. But Paul says it very bluntly in 1 Corinthians eleven nine. 9. He says, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. I mean, don't shoot me, right? I'm just reading you God's word. So some of you are kind of looking at me with daggers in your eyes. That's what the Bible says. But we have to understand it. Um, if you're honest, as you sit there, ladies, your blood pressure is probably going up a little bit. When you hear God describe your role as a helper to your husband, probably your, your first tendency is to think that there's something wrong there that goes against everything you're hearing. There are women in this country, there are women in this city, hopefully there are women, or there are no women in our church, but who would want to lash out at those hearing those words. They would want to hurt the messenger. But to help does not imply that the helper is inferior. It's just very important. In fact, I think Christ forever elevates the role of the helper when he says on the night before his crucifixion in John 14, 6, he says to his disciples, what's he going to do? I'm going to send you another helper. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, ladies, is, is on the same level as you as a helper. I mean, that's a pretty incredible role. But he says another helper. Who was the first helper? Jesus Christ himself. God says, in the person of his son, I'm here to help you. And the Spirit is here to help you. And you know what, wives? You're called to do the same thing to your husband, to be his helper. What a blessing that is. Now, in what sense was the woman created to be the helper to the husband? That's, that's the question. There's a lot of different views on this. Augustine, all the way back in the early church, suggested that the wife was to help primarily in the task of bearing children. Now, I don't know if you'd support that or not, because he says, well, the command is to be fruitful and multiply. But, you know, I don't think men help very much when the woman's actually bearing a child. <laughs> Ladies, you do all that work. We kind of stand there and, uh, you know, what do we do? Um, another view teaches that the wife is to help in the sense of cultivating and keeping the garden. That Eve was created to help Adam cultivate and keep the garden. Remember, in, in Genesis 2.15, he was commanded to do that, and they say that's the help that she was created for. Another view sees wives as helping by providing support in the widest possible sense. I think the last one really nails it down. Since nowhere does Scripture limit the sphere of the wife helping her husband, I think it's just a general statement. You're to be a helper to your husband. And when you look at the role of the the wife's help in Proverbs 31, it's huge. I mean, that lady's doing a lot of stuff. She's created as his helper. Now, God does give us some clarification on exactly what this help looks like in Titus 2. We're we're told, when you look at that that passage over there in in, uh, verse 3, it, it, it's, it's Paul talking to Titus, and he says that the older women are living a certain way, and older women, 
back then, basically anybody over 60. So sorry, if you're over 60, in the Bible, you're considered an old, older woman. That's, that's kind of standard. And it says that the older women are to encourage or literally train the younger woman. That's what you're called to do. Younger women being under 60. So we have both gamuts here, even in our small little church. We have women that are over 60. We have women who are under 60. The biblical model was for the women who are over 60, the older women, they should be training the younger women in life and godliness. Well, how do they do that? It tells us right there in Titus 2, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. I mean, that's pretty clear. Even over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul makes the same point to Timothy in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 5. He says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married. Okay, these are women who have lost their husband. They're widowed. Their husband passed. Their husband died. And they're still at a young age. He says, I want them to get married, to bear children, to keep house. And give the enemy no occasion for reproach. See, today in our society, unfortunately, too many wives are pursuing their own interests. They're giving up the concept of helping their husbands. And they're pursuing their own interests. They're pursuing their own careers. And sadly, unfortunately, many husbands are kind of doubling down on that, encouraging their wives in their self-serving interests for economic reasons, especially here in the Bay Area. Usually both people in the household have to work just for cost. But I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul or what I am saying here this morning. Because women, wives, are more than capable of pursuing careers. Very gifted, very able. They're more than capable of pursuing their own interests. I'm just saying that's not what God's design is. That's not what God's design is. I'm not saying, and I don't believe Paul is saying here, he's not saying that you can never, under any circumstances, work outside the home. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I'm simply saying that when you read these passages, it's pretty clear that God's design is that you build your own life helping your husband. That you not build your own life separate from that within the confines of marriage. The wife's first priority in life is to be a helper to her husband. Whether that looks, you know, it can take different forms. Maybe she takes on training the children or running the family business, whatever it is. Keeping home. Serving alongside her husband in ministry. Whatever it might be. But that should be the focus of your life, even if you have a job. See, it's not saying you can't work outside the home. But I've seen a lot of families crumble quickly because what happens? Dad's working 24-7. Because of financial strain, mom's working 24-7. Well, who watches the kids? Well, they're farmed out to some daycare somewhere. And then, you know, everybody comes home at night, and usually mom and dad are so bushed, there's no relationship thing going on at all. And it just doesn't work. That's not God's ideal. So if you want to do that, ladies, that's fine. But realize your first priority is in the home. Just because you have a job doesn't give you an excuse to have a dirty house. Put it bluntly. That's irrelevant. That's, that's what the scriptures are saying. Now... Like I said, sometimes men, we add to this because we, we goof up our own priorities and sometimes we need that second income. I get it. But that's not God's ideal. Um, because it's going to harm your family in the long run. She should, and she was created by God to be a helper to you as her husband. Now, there's another warning here I want to include in this because you can take this to the extreme, right, as anything. Husbands, the fact that God designed marriage for your wife to assist you, to help you, 
That does not mean that she's your personal slave. That's not what that means. I remember hearing a country western song. Went like this. Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. Go out to the car and change the tire. Darn my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Fetch my shoes and then go fix my supper. And fix me up another pot of tea. Just put another log on the fire, baby. Then come and tell me why you're leaving me. Gee, really? That's not the idea behind being a helper to your husband. Just to be clear. So the first purpose of marriage is what? It's relationship. The second, God designed marriage for help. Well, the third purpose here is completion. Verse 18, completion. Look at what it says back in Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper, what? Suitable for him. Suitable for him. The word suitable translates a Hebrew compound word. It's a prepositional phrase. Literally, it says this. I'm going to make a helper as in front of him. Or like the opposite of him. Expression is found here only in the Old Testament. It literally means corresponding to or exactly corresponding. And I think the intention of these words is very similar to the expression male and female back in 127 of Genesis. I made them male and female. They're exactly corresponding to each other. Now, this has far-reaching implications when it comes to understanding God's purpose for marriage. The first implication is that he made them male and female. This is fundamental to understanding God's design for marriage, that it's for male and female. Marriage is for Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Okay, it's very simple. But our society doesn't want that. They can go have their relationships, but don't call it marriage. Because that's not what marriage is. It's never been that. But there's another obvious conclusion here. And that is that God designed marriage for one man and one woman. Period. Now, you look in the Old Testament, obviously, there was people who had a lot more than one wife. Uh, Polygamy was tolerated in the Old Testament. But it was never God's divine intention. And whenever you see polygamy run rampant in the Old Testament, it never ends well. Never. Flipping through the channels one day and saw this show about, I guess they're Mormons. They have a bunch of wives. It's like, what in the world is this? And you see this drama and issues. I've never... You know, I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I can't even handle my one wife, let alone two or three. I mean, oh my gosh. Wow, are you kidding me? That's not God's design. Jesus makes that very clear in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 10, for example, in verse 7, he says the two shall become what? One flesh. He doesn't say the three or the four. They are no longer two, but one flesh. The obvious is, is plain and simple for anybody to see. God didn't create a harem for Adam. He created one woman. But there's more in the Genesis passage here. By saying that God made mankind male and female, and then by adding in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis that they complement each other or exactly correspond, God really, he's underscoring the intrinsic quality, equality of men and women. This is so important. People miss this. It's true that man existed prior to woman, but don't get too prideful men. (laughs) They were created in the same day. (laughs) Okay, so it wasn't that much prior to. And Paul makes the point in several places in the New Testament. 
Um, the man is the head. The wife is the helper. Specific roles. But that doesn't deny spiritual equality that exists between men and women. Um, Paul couldn't make it clearer than he did in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. What's he say? He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. You know this verse, right? There's neither slave nor free. There's neither what? Male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, spiritually, all of those external distinctions, whether you're Jew or, or Greek or slave or free or male or female, have been erased when it comes to the body of Christ. There is absolutely intrinsic equality before God. And the verse we read earlier in 1 Peter 3, the wives are called fellow heirs along with the men of the grace of life. So just because you've been given the role to be helpers to your husbands, that doesn't mean that you're a notch below them. Don't believe that at all. Even within the members of the Trinity, there is submission the son to the father, and marriage reflects the image of God. We are spiritually equal before God, but we have been assigned, look at it this way, different roles in marriage. And when you mess those roles up, that's when you create chaos. Um, Back in Genesis 2, verse 18, God determines that he is going to make a helper suitable corresponding to Adam. And then in verse 19, it tells us, What's he do? Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. I mean, think about some of the names of some of the God's creation. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. Boy, Adam really had had a good imagination. I mean, could you think of a platypus as anything other than a platypus? I mean, it's just weird, you know. I mean, I know that's English, but still, it's just a, it would be a kind of an interesting task to have. Um, but what does this do? It allows Adam to come to the same conclusion to which God had already come. And God brings Adam those animals that were probably in the closest proximity and the most likely to be candidates for companionship. And he says he brought the birds and cattle. Cattle kind of refers to domesticated animals, beasts of the field, probably a reference to small little wild animals that live near the humans. He examines all those, and guess what? His search was fruitless. He didn't find one, didn't find a companion. He gave them all names, but he couldn't find a companion. Adam had to discern their natures. And he had to study them, and that's expressed when he gave them their name. He just didn't say, next, you know, okay, I'll call you this, I'll call you that. No, he looked at it and discerned what, what he would call it. And in that process, he, dis- he discovers that there weren't any other crea- creatures, creatures that God had created along that shared his nature. He was alone. He was by himself. And once Adam realized that he was alone, just as God had already realized that, he knew that, he was ready for God to meet that need. And in verse 21, it tells us, you have God's creation of woman. The whole account is similar to poetry. Um, Verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord fashioned, just that word fashioned, incredible word, in a, into a woman, the rib which he had taken out from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam slept, God fashioned the rib into a woman. Um, the story of the Sunday school. They were teaching how God created everything, and including human beings. And uh, little Johnny, uh, a child in the kindergarten class, seemed especially intent when they told him how Eve was created out of Adam's rib. Well, later in the week, 
Johnny was home, his mother noticed him lying down as if he were ill. And she said, Johnny, what's the matter? Johnny responded, I don't feel well, Mom. I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) Just kind of funny. That word fashioned, formed, by the way, it's a rare word. It literally means to build. God built a woman. Now, there are two questions here that arise from this passage. One of them is how God made the woman. Why did he take the part of man to do it as the rib? Why did he do that? Well, the answer is obvious. And that is that God wanted Adam and Eve both to know that she was made of his same substance. She wasn't inferior in any way, bone of his bones, as he said down in verse 23. And God used Adam, he used part of Adam to picture the reality that she truly is his complement. She's part of him. But ask yourself, why a rib? And there's been a lot of discussion about this, a lot of ink spilled over that. But I like what Matthew Henry said. He said this, Woman was not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. What a good explanation. One of God's purposes for marriage was to provide man with completion. Someone who exactly corresponds to him. Now, the practical implications of this are huge. I mean, you've probably looked at the book or read the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. There's differences. We're not the same. Um, Guys, if you've ever been tempted to think, I just wish you were more like I am, less emotional to your wife. Well, that's not going to happen. That's not how God created her. Or there are wives who wish their husbands were more sensitive or more understanding. That their husbands would discover their, their, as the culture says, feminine side. Listen, guys, you don't need to discover your feminine side. If you're married, you already have one. It's called your wife, okay? So just let it rest there. The differences here are that we are complementing each other, perfectly corresponding, designed by God to make a complete package. We don't need to re-engineer each other. We just need to be committed to what God has called us to do, to live together for his glory. So God's purpose for marriage was to provide relationship, to provide hope or help, (laughs) um, but also to provide complement, completion. Um, let me ask you this. Do you find yourself wishing your spouse were more like you? Or wish somehow that you could manu- remanufacture your spouse? Maybe to make your husband a little more emotional or a little more feeling-oriented? Or maybe your wife more masculine so she would think more like you? If you're thinking that, if you're even thinking that, you need to repent. You need to ask God forgiveness. I mean, he's the one that created us. And he created us just the way we are. Thank God for the differences in your spouse. Thank God for the way that you correspond to each other in every sense. Because our marriages have a divine purpose. And that purpose is fleshed out in Genesis 2 for relationship, for help, for completion. I pray that those, those words describe your marriage. Douglas Wilson, in his little book, Reforming Marriage, wrote this, if we might paraphrase the words of the catechism, the chief end of marriage is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Father, we thank you for the Institute of Marriage. We thank you for our spouses. Lord, we thank you that you have entrusted to us our roles within the marriage relationship. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't 
seek to change that, but we would seek to conform, that we would mold ourselves to that image. And Lord, I know that in the society we live in, this just goes straight against what we're told on every corner. And yet it's your word. It's, it's complete. And I think when we do things in God's way, in a way that honors you, you will give us success. And we'll see blessings in our marriages, in our relationships. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to lead us and guide us. Help us to be husbands that desire to serve our wives in a way that uh, the Bible describes us to. And wives, I pray that you would be a help, helper to your husbands in the way that the Bible describes that role as well. And Father, we, we look forward to the coming weeks as we delve into more of these roles and what it means to not just be in a marriage, but also to raise children and to be a family. And Lord, we just pray that you would lead us and guide us. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, because that's the first relationship of importance in your life. Um, if you don't have a relationship with God through Christ, then you're going to have a tough time with all your relationships. Because our sin has violated that relationship. Our sin broke that relationship with God. And yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross to take upon himself the penalty of our sin. And when we turn from our sin to the Savior and ask for his forgiveness and tell him that we desire to live for him, not for ourselves anymore, that we want to follow Christ with all of our being, then he'll forgive you of your sin. He'll restore that relationship with your God and creator. And you'll understand this purpose that we've been talking about even here this morning in relationship and love. And you'll understand it through his grace and his mercy. And it's as simple as crying out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me in my my life. Help me even in my unbelief. Give me that desire to pursue you and you alone. And as believers, I just pray that we'd continue to trust in you, to build our marriages into lives that would be honoring and glorifying to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.